Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Welcome to the Julia Hartley Brewer Daily. If you missed any of my talk radio breakfast show, don't worry. We've put some of the punchiest bits of this morning's show into a bite-sized podcast, the Julia Hartley Brewer Daily. Enjoy. Online, on DAB and on the Talk Radio app. Talk Radio. Right now, I'm delighted to welcome my next guest, Housing Secretary Robert Jenrick. Good morning to you. Hi, good morning, Good Julie. morning. Nice to have you on again. Appreciate you joining us. Um, uh, let's have a, a chat about uh, this good news about a second vaccine. Lots of criticism of the government yesterday about why the government hadn't bought this Moderna vaccine but had bought the Pfizer vaccine. But we have now purchased five million doses, not until the spring. So why did we not purchase this particular vaccine? Well, we set up the vaccines uh, task force earlier in the year and they set out to pre-order as many vaccines as they could from credible projects that were emerging around the world. It seems like they've done a very good job at that. We're actually one of the best placed countries in the world. We have pre-orders with a range of different programmes. Some have come to fruition sooner than others. And that was obviously a difficult judgment, difficult to predict earlier on. But as you say, we've got 40 million doses or more of the Pfizer vaccine, 10 million of which will be available before the end of this year. So there will be millions of people being vaccinated, I hope, before Christmas. And we have a smaller amount, but nonetheless, 5 million doses of the new Moderna one, uh, which will be available in the spring. So we're actually pretty well placed and there are still other irons in the fire. Of course, we all hope that the Oxford AstraZeneca programme, our own homegrown one will come to fruition uh, soon and that will provide us with tens if not hundreds of millions of doses so that the majority of the country certainly the vulnerable people in society uh, can expect to okay. be getting vaccinated yeah. in the first half of next year and the explanation of course is uh, the, the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine is very similar uh, uh, and, and also may well be much much cheaper and easy to put out it doesn't have all those concerns about the minus 70 degree uh, Celsius storage um, how soon can we get back to ordinary life you know able to see our family members uh, not wearing masks uh, able to go to the pub uh, have not worry about uh, killing someone when you have a Christmas lunch with them on, on the 25th of December how soon can we get back to ordinary life once we get to the end of this current lockdown on December the 2nd and once and or once these uh, vaccines are rolled out? Well, as soon as possible. I think the, the last two weeks have transformed the picture and raised everybody's hopes for 2021. If we can vaccinate the most vulnerable people in society in the first half of next year, and we've already begun to set out how we will do that, Uh, in a fair and sensible way, 
then we will see a very significant opening up of the economy and society as the year progresses. We're clearly going to be living with with the virus in one form or another for, for most of next year, and there will be scarring effects, uh, some sadly very significant. But I, I, I'm increasingly optimistic about 2021, particularly uh, from the spring onwards, being a period of recovery this, and renewal for the country. But hold on, what was the point of this lockdown that we're in right now, if it wasn't, as people were calling it, this idea of this circuit break? I mean, the, the Labour Party were calling for a two-week one, but then stretched to three. We're currently in a four-week uh, lockdown. If it doesn't break the circuit, if it doesn't cut deaths, if it doesn't mean that we can be out of all these measures and getting back to normal life, what's the point of it? Well, we didn't argue with the government for a circuit breaker. We took the view that these further national measures would enable us to suppress the virus and to ensure that the NHS wasn't overwhelmed so that we could continue to get through uh, the remainder of the winter before the vaccination programme was able to kick in. It it appears as if that strategy was a, a wise one in the sense that now with this good news on the vaccinations, we should start to see the most vulnerable people, those most clinically vulnerable to the virus, um, being vaccinated. Well, hold on a minute. Does that mean we have to stay in some version of these lockdown restrictions? We can call it a lockdown. We can call it tier three. We can call it tier four, whatever we want to call it. Does that mean unless or until all the elderly and vulnerable people are vaccinated and the earliest date we've got for that is Easter, and if that's if it all goes very well indeed, that we have to stay in these level of restrictions until next Easter? No, that we that isn't our expectation. We hope that we'll be, uh, and of course, it's a very fast-moving picture because these discoveries have only uh, come to fruition in the last two weeks, so it's difficult to say with confidence. But it does seem as if um, millions of people will be able to be vaccinated before the end of this year, and then more substantial numbers in the first few months of next year. The measures that we're undergoing at the moment, difficult though they are, and I appreciate that that, um, they divide opinions, they will enable us to ensure that the NHS is definitely uh, not overwhelmed, that there's definitely capacity to manage the virus until such time as more people have been vaccinated and the spring also will bring other benefits as well as better weather and so on will help to, or will play its own role in suppressing the virus. So I, I do think people will have to bear with measures of some form or another uh, for a period longer. And how long but do you I think... certainly hope that we won't have to have another national lockdown of the kind that we've experienced. But this how month. long do you think people are going to put up with this? It's very clear that the evidence shows that um, you know that, that, that people say they support the lockdown, but they also say we talked to Sir John Curtis, a zoologist and bolster about all this a little bit earlier. They also say, well, actually, you know, um, I support the lockdown, but other people aren't obeying the lockdown. Um, I genuinely, I I can think of only now three people that I know who are absolutely obeying all the measures of the lockdown. Lots of people who want more stricter measures say, well, all these people out on, you know, people are out in the supermarkets, people are going to school, going to work. There are many people calling for even stricter measures, closing the schools, not allowing people to work unless they're key workers, going back to the measures we saw last March and April and May. Um, Realistically, how long can this nation and this economy and indeed our, our, I suppose, our mental health survive living in these level of restrictions and lockdowns on our lives? Well, I want the measures that we're under, we're living under at the moment to end on the 2nd of December. Uh, as a matter of law, they will do. 
uh, unless Parliament chose to extend them. But it's our hope and expectation that that won't be the case and that people living in England will see a significant easing after that. We will exit into the tiers and there's some further work going on at the moment within government to design the tiers. And we'll be saying more about that at the end of the month. But we want to see real easing up so that people can go about their daily lives in a much more normal way uh, in December. We shall keep, that's absolutely right. We shall keep our fingers crossed. Let's talk about what uh, the social housing white paper that comes under your remit as housing secretary. You're looking at major reforms to support housing tenants in England and ensure landlords raise their standards. Now, this is the stuff that actually affects real people's daily lives in their homes, especially when they're stuck in them a lot more these days. Yeah, that's absolutely right, Julia. There's four million Um, social households in the UK, people living in homes that are uh, owned or run by housing associations and and local councils. And we've, I think, increasingly come to see that the level of regulation uh, for them is quite poor. Uh, It isn't very consumer focused. So if things go wrong, people don't have the redress that they deserve. We saw that, sadly, with the Grenfell Tower tragedy. And that's one of the things that's inspired this piece of work. So we're going to be beefing that up giving people much better rights, the ability to to raise concerns and get redress when they need it so that those homes are safe, they're secure, they have uh, good access to green space for their families. Uh, And as I say, when things go wrong, critically, they're able to make complaints, uh, find out information in a transparent way and get answers and redress quickly. Okay, and just finally, um, do you agree with the Prime Minister? As as he said to a bunch of Northern MPs in a Zoom call yesterday from his flat in uh, Downing Street that uh, uh, the devolution in this country has been a disaster? Well, that wasn't what the the Prime Minister was saying. He said, or, or it's been misinterpreted, The Prime Minister is not opposed to devolution. He's a supporter of devolution, uh, both to the devolved administrations and within England. You can be a supporter of it and still think it's been a disaster. He's the first Prime Minister to have been an elected mayor, I think, since Clement Attlee. His concern, and it's one that I would share, is that devolution in Scotland has led to the rise of separatism and nationalism in the form of the SNP and Nicola Sturgeon. And that is divisive and seeks to... Uh, break up the United Kingdom. He loves the United Kingdom. He's a unionist and he believes we should all be working hard to fight against that. And that's what he's doing in government. And you can see that for you know, example, the furlough scheme, a really important UK wide scheme that's supporting millions of jobs in Scotland. And for example, with the vaccine programme, whereas a United Kingdom government, we're going out into the international market, procuring vaccines to help save people's lives and reopen the economy. But, but so surely... the strength of the UK is very clear and we want to ensure that continues. There's nothing wrong with nationalism if the people of Scotland or Wales or anywhere else want to, uh, just as we had with Brexit, the people of the UK voting uh, to not be controlled by the EU if they want to be independent of the United Kingdom. Surely if they vote to do so, they have every right to do so. Well, we all believe in patriotism, um, love of country, and it's absolutely right that people in Scotland um, should be proud of their nation. But I don't want to see the breakup of the United Kingdom because I believe it's equally important uh, that this great union that's existed for hundreds of years should continue. It's one of the world's most successful unions of nations. And we as Conservatives, I know the Prime Minister feels very deeply about this, will do everything that we can to preserve it and to persuade our friends and neighbours in Scotland to remain part of the UK. Online, on DAB and on the Talk Radio app. Talk Radio. It's that time of the year. 
Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker, Talk Radio. Uh, let's uh, let's turn our attention to uh, well one of the effects of uh, of lockdowns and a huge huge effects on our economy of businesses being shut down and in particular those three million people who've been left without any financial support during the pandemic. Uh, last week we spoke to Andy Burnham and uh, the mayor of Greater Manchester and the Liverpool mayor Steve Rotherham uh, about their campaign group Excluded UK and I'm delighted to say Andy Burnham joins us once again this morning. Good morning, to you, Andy. Good morning. Good morning. Julia. Now you've been campaigning, holding Zoom meetings, trying to get uh, the government to listen about these three million people. Obviously, many of them, you know, in your part of the world, who you know, people who've you know gone out on their own, set up their businesses, worked hard, and have found themselves without those loving arms wrapped around them, looking after them during this pandemic. Um, have you made any progress? Have you got any word yet from the Treasury that the Chancellor is planning to help those people? Not yet, but we live in hope. Of course, the Chancellor is delivering a spending statement a week tomorrow. So there'll be three million people hanging on his every word, uh, Julia. We are building the campaign out. We're hoping to hold an event with Sadiq Khan this week. So Steve and I kind of building the campaign out. Liverpool, Manchester, London, starting to to link up the the cities. Um, Because what I would say to any politician of, of, of any party please just sit down with these people who are your constituents as well. Just listen to their stories about how hard this year has been. As you said, Julia, they're people who went it alone, took a risk, set up their own business, went freelance. I think it leaves a terrible message hanging over the country at the end of this if it's basically that you've done all of that and you're completely on your own. I mean, it doesn't help build a pro-business entrepreneurial culture in our country. So there are many, many reasons here why the government should intervene. And yet but that... I would probably say it's basic humanity, really, that that, that, that should call on them to, uh, to to act. Well, indeed, but the Chancellor's argument, I think, whenever he's questioned about this, has been 
how do you roll out help to these people over and above, you know, universal credit and the like, when you, you often these people simply don't have uh, accounts that have published that they're so open to fraud. And we've seen huge levels of fraud when it comes to bank loans, grants, uh, people claiming furlough money, and the like. How do you do this when you haven't got a set of accounts that have been filed previously or something that you can actually verify to show that these businesses existed before the lockdown? Well, let me just say that the, the chance has done some really good things this year with furlough and the self-employment support scheme. So let's give credit where it's due. But I think that sounds like a bit of an excuse to me because these three million people, Julia, are all taxpayers. You know, they're, they're not sort of people who are kind of kind of finding a way around the system. They are taxpayers. Often they may use what's called PAYE, so they're taxed at source, or they pay themselves as directors of very small small companies. But they are taxpayers. So what I would say to the government is you've got a record through HMRC of their past earnings. And that would be the way in which you could help them uh, through a, a tax rebate uh, paid to them uh, based on what they've earned before and what, what they were likely to have earned this year. There is, there is a way of doing this, uh, Julia, if the will uh, is there. And um, I would just say it's got to be there because from what we heard last week, um, and we heard the kind of pain in people's voices, the sort of I don't know, this kind of sense of rejection. They've contributed so much to the country. They are, they're not natural political activists, these yes. people. They're doers, they're, you know, you know, they're not complainers. But basically, they feel quite frozen out and uh, quite, quite sore about, uh, rightly sore uh, about that. And I would just say to the government, you know, that they really do need help. In, in the end, jobs, businesses, homes, marriages, lives depend upon this. Some people were saying last week, that there are voices that can't be heard because sadly some people have been pushed to the brink and beyond it, unfortunately, uh, this year. And, and we do know, again, the cost of this. So let's, let's talk about what happens on December the 2nd then. When you fought valiantly against, uh, we mentioned going into tier three, as I did see Rodham uh, in Liverpool as well. A lot of that was about the financial help that wasn't then available. But you, you've been in support of a full lockdown. You wanted it like your party leader, Keir Starmer, for it to be sooner uh, than it was. Um, but we are seeing the ongoing costs of this uh, in terms of businesses being lost, jobs being lost and the pressure on people. Um, talk yesterday about us not really coming out to anything resembling normal life uh, on December the 3rd, uh, going into the tiers again, possibly a new tier, a tier four, Scotland style, um, with massive restrictions. Given that we're told that the restrictions didn't work before lockdown, what's the point of going into more restrictions after lockdown? Well, this is probably where you and I have some agreement uh, on, on this. I don't think we agreed about the national circuit break, but I do agree with you that it's too much of an ask to ask people to live under perpetual restrictions. And I I'll be honest, my heart sank yesterday when I heard uh, some of what was said at that press briefing. The World Health Organization are really clear about this. They say you cannot ask people to live under you know, continual restrictions because it goes back to that excluded issue as well, Julia. I think what's building here, let's be honest about it, we're seeing a mental health crisis developing here alongside a, a pandemic. And I, I, I think the government needs to be very careful uh, about this. The reason I supported a sharper, uh, more decisive circuit break was precisely so that we could get back to a degree of normal life beyond it. And I think this problem we're getting into here is living under this perpetual halfway house sort of style of restrictions that don't really do the job, but, you know, don't really allow people to live their lives either. You know, it's not great, I, I, I would say. Online, on DAB and on the Talk Radio app. Talk Radio.
The UK has ordered five million doses of the Moderna vaccine uh, from the United States. Uh, Matthew Hancock, the health secretary yesterday, defended the government's decision not to have bought uh, the, that vaccine in advance, uh, as they've done with six other vaccines around the around the world, including that Pfizer vaccine that looks very promising, uh, and uh, also, of course, Oxford University vaccine that could be ready as early as next month. He pointed out that actually this is a, a vaccine that's basically all the doses being bought up by the Americans. They're not going to have large-scale production until uh, uh, in Europe until the spring anyway. So although it's 95% effective, um, they've bought enough for two and a half million people, two doses, of course. Um, the question was really to get focus on getting those vaccines that would uh, come to market quicker rather than later. But does the advent of all these vaccines, does that mean that we are going to get out of all these restrictions on our lives? Let's talk to Professor Anthony Brooks. He's a geneticist and health data scientist at the University of Leicester and kindly joins us once again. Good morning to you, Professor. Good morning. Um, we keep having our hopes sort of raised. You know, this, oh, <laughs> wonderful news, new vaccine. Each new vaccine, well, that's promising for another vaccine as well. We could have, we could have dozens of vaccines all available within a matter of, of months. Does that mean that the end is nigh and we're not going to have to see masks, social distancing, lockdown restrictions, curfews, shops closed, pubs closed? Is life going to return to normal? And if so, when? Well, um, you keep asking me to find my crystal ball and it's, it's really still not fixed, I'm afraid. But um, look, there's today, there's still many, many unknowns about these vaccines. It's great that the initial data are so positive. What those data show are nothing more or nothing less than they reduce symptoms in people who are vaccinated. Uh, that's being described as it protects you from disease. But what it means is it's actually reducing symptoms. We do not know if those vaccines reduce your chances of being infected. So whether it creates some immunity or, and whether it makes you less infectious. There's every hope that they will. But the well, hold on today, a minute. Yeah. I thought the Moderna, I mean, we haven't seen anything detailed at all, but I thought the whole mm-hmm. point of Moderna and indeed Pfizer, what they were saying was that the, the people, you know, um, uh, virtually all of the people who got infected with the virus and tested positive for the virus while they were undergoing these trials were people who were in the control group, had the placebo, right. and not yep. people who'd had the, the actual vaccine. Does that not yep. tell us so, that it prevents people from getting the virus? No, Um it, it means that it might, but but it doesn't tell us that it does. So, you know, they take 20-odd thousand people and give the vaccine, 20-odd thousand people and give either a placebo injection or another vaccine, such as for meningitis, then you get some side effects in both cases mm-hmm. to compare. Um, and then you just stand back and watch who gets any COVID symptoms. And you can count them, which, which group they belong to. And so far, nine out of 10 people that step forward with COVID symptoms are in the non-vaccinated group. So that just shows that um, it, it, it is quite possible that people, the same number of people in each group are getting infected, yeah. but just in the vaccinated group, they're not showing symptoms. So, so that's still possible. I, I really want to say it's quite likely that they do, that these vaccines will de- provide a degree of immunity um, and that it, therefore, since you're getting less symptoms, you've probably got less active virus in you. So you're probably also less infectious. But we just don't know that from the data and, today. And that's the key thing. But also, I suppose the key thing is also what, what happens with the elderly, more vulnerable groups. Because frankly, if mm-hmm. we can protect all the people who are most likely to get this virus um, mm. and, and most likely to get sick and to die from this virus, the over 70s group, uh, all the yeah. people with vulnerable uh, health problems, um, it doesn't really matter if a whole bunch of 25-year-olds get a virus that makes them feel yeah. a little bit poorly for 
a day or two and they're perfectly fine afterwards or get no symptoms at all, as long as they're not able to infect uh, and, and possibly kill older people. But, it, but we don't be... know who this has been tested on yet, do we? No, no. It may even be a good thing if the young people get infected and get naturally immune because that helps increase herd immunity. But you're right. The tests, so the, the vaccine trials so far have large, used people largely under about the age of 55. So we don't know how well what they'll do in the older people. But so will that will vaccines get us back to normal? Your original question in the near future? Well, clearly not, because they won't be rolled out to most people for many, many months, perhaps a year or two. Well, so hold on a minute. Real... What, what about mm-hmm. when we, uh, this argument that, OK, we'll, we'll, we'll obviously vaccinate the vulnerable people first. So mm-hmm. the, uh, you know, the, the people over 80, people over 70 people, and, mm-hmm. and people who are vulnerable, they're going to be vaccinated first. And the people who work with them closely, care home workers uh, and the okay. NHS staff. Once yeah. that is done and we're told we could possibly get that done by Easter, if we'll have enough vaccines okay. and we've got the logistics going, if that were done, could everyone else go back to normal? Well, best case scenario, the vaccine does provide immunity. It does make you less infectious. And we managed to get all the relevant people infected. Um, then, yes, by next spring, things could look a bit very different. But that's like everything going well. Um, there's all sorts of you know, poss- possible explanations why it might not go so well. So I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful that we'll get to some uh, much better situation by next spring. But I think it'll take quite a bit longer. And that brings us back to what do we do in the meantime? Do we just keep having lockdown and lockdown and, and literally destroying the economy and causing all the other uh, uh, negative um, consequences or do we switch to this idea of mass screening so that people every day or several times a week are testing themselves at home um, and then essentially getting a freedom pass to go and uh, engage in society um, that's now the big push the moonshot project from the government and that really really is a problematic concept um, it's not viable it's not effective it's not appropriate it will create hundreds of thousands of false positives each day. So people will be isolating unnecessarily. It will create hundreds of thousands of false um, reassurances each day. People told they're negative when they're actually positive. They'll go out there and, and intermingle with others. Cost will be the equivalent of about six uh, six times the cost of the whole UK police force and about almost approaching the cost of the whole NHS. So that approach, I think, it needs to be paused and reevaluated. But getting back to something you were talking about earlier, applying those new tests, not in that mass population moonshot screening, but to target in- environments like care homes is actually a very sensible thing as long as we do it the right way. There are ways to do it wrong, but there's ways to do it right. So okay. I am optimistic there. We have got an issue. We I mean, false positive rate. Again, I'm, I'm still amazed at the number of people who still say this is absolute nonsense when we when we can see mm. that we've had the rapid test in the lateral flow tests in Liverpool, which have shown about a third of the rate uh, of the, 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 the swab tests were showing in terms of uh, the prevalence of the infection rate uh, in, in Liverpool. Uh, and that, mm-hmm. that the, 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 the rate that these, these supposedly very very accurate new lateral flow tests have been showing us is actually around the rate that the manufacturers themselves say is the false positive rate uh, of this uh, this fact this uh, this test being used you know in outside in the real world as opposed to in a laboratory with with trained scientists carrying out the the the, uh, the test which is obviously what 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 is not happening with these um this whole idea that the vaccines aren't a, a quick solution to this problem the mass testing isn't a quick solution to this problem. Is this because fundamentally this is a political problem rather than a medical problem? Um, I can't remember who it was, but someone said this has been a political pandemic, not a not a medical pandemic. And I think there's a lot of truth in that. A lot of the decisions made, um, we, we've seen how the data have been misrepresented and all the fear mongering unnecessarily. I mean, I think the average member of the UK 
population is now much more scared than they really need to be about this whole thing. So there are political aspects to this, and we could, you know, it's probably not my role as a as a geneticist and data science expert to 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 start going into what what those reasons might be. But there clearly are um, a lot of other motives and considerations beyond just the medical here. Um, and this is the thing: it, it is a matter of fact that we are not seeing excess mortality in our hospitals right now. We are seeing excess mortality on a low level in our homes, but these are of patients, uh, people who are under 60s, very, they're not dying of COVID, they're dying of untreated other diseases. That's we are right. not seeing body bags piled up in the streets, hospitals yeah. totally over capacity. We are not seeing, yeah. well, when you look at these infection rates from these tests that show us tens and tens of thousands of people every single day being infected with this terribly infectious, terribly deadly disease. We are exactly. not seeing that played out in the hospitals. We're not seeing that in the mortality figures. It is simply, there, there is simply no evidence that we are in a terrible, terrible second wave of this virus. When you look at, not a matter of opinion, but a simple, if you look at the simple matter of the data that is available, mm-hmm. official data from Public Health England, um, Office for National Statistics and, uh, and the, and the uh, NHS, there is no evidence that we are in a terrifying second wave of this virus, is there? That's right. So so I think that's I'm really glad you made that point because um, there's too much fear around. And I if, let me just state some very basic facts. Just no spin here. Nothing like the government, you know, cherry picking data and exaggerating. I'll give you the, the absolute numbers today and people can then take that away and, and make their own decisions about how scared to be. So in terms of people actually infected today, it's probably around one percent in the population. But the vast majority of those will have no symptoms. And if you're under under uh, about 65, it's less risk than, your reg- than regular flu. Um, the number of people dying today is the same as it would be any other year in total. People are dying of respiratory diseases today. Um, it's about the same as it normally would be. The thing is, they'd normally die of flu and pneumonia. Those diseases are very, very much reduced this year, and it's been replaced with COVID. The COVID deaths just predicting from the charts and all the other considerations, will continue to go up from here. I actually agree with the government that it could approach the level of deaths per day that we had in the wave one. I don't think it will. I think it will top out about two thirds of that level in a a couple of weeks time. Um, The hospitals, they've increased their capacity beyond normal years. So they have they are less full in emergency care units than they would normally be. So it's normally about 1995. They're about 85 this, 85% this year. That's because they've increased the capacity, but they're in no way struggling to cope. So that's where we are. We need to predict where we go forward, back to my crystal ball. Um, and since the fact is the that the um, prevalence of the virus in terms of people carrying it has plateaued and is now starting to at least run as a flat level, it, it, it looks like it may be going down as well. Um, we can expect that to feed through in the in the in the in the health impacts, the death impacts over the next few weeks. That it will also plateau and then hopefully going down, go down as well. No, we so it's it, it exists. It's real. We need to be careful, but we shouldn't be, you know, um, thinking of this as a as a as a major player. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker, Talk Radio. Thanks for listening to the Julia Hartley Brewer Daily. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe and give me a good review. And don't forget to catch me on the Talk Radio Breakfast Show every weekday from 6.30 until 10. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bolandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.